0: Hello, and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder our expectations have become greater, and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate, and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard. This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines, and knowing when to quit. Choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimize your success. Jeremy May and Lucy Wright founded Nice Wine to create wine for whenever for the wins, the woes, and the why-nots. The co-founders talked about their working dynamic, why they love real-time, honest feedback, how their best investments have been in their team and how they look for character over skill set. We chatted about competition, why staying off Instagram has its merits, the challenges of the category and the opportunities for them as a business, and of course, how to raise money and where to get it from. You will likely have seen nice in a supermarket, a picnic basket or a magazine as the brand continues to dominate across the UK. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, what Nice is and what you do within the business?
1: Yes. So Nice is, we call ourselves a future wine company, and we're very focused on putting consumers first. Our our first range of products are a canned wine range of products. So we've got a pale rosé from the south of France, a Sauvignon Blanc from Cote de Gascoigne, also in France. And then we've also got an Argentinian Malbec. And we sell them in two different size cans, two fifty 50 ml cans and 187 ml cans. And just going back to the whole point around putting consumers first, that's actually quite a new thing for wine. And I think the fact that wine has, generally speaking, been in a 75 CL bottle really proves that point. Because the wine bottle is great and it's really perfect for loads of occasions if you're in the pub or if you're at a restaurant or if you're at home, but it's not really perfect for loads of occasions if you're on a train and if you're going to a festival. So as a business, we're really focused around that consumer moment of, of when they drink wine and what is the perfect vessel and what is the perfect liquid. And also we're very focused as a business on really breaking down those barriers in wine. So generally speaking, it's been quite an intimidating category. I think we've probably all been made to feel silly by a wine waiter. And so we don't use any of that wine language or wine jargon that potentially people don't understand. We try and just make it really approachable. And my role in the business is that I'm head of sales and strategy. So most of my time is spent on running the sales side of things, looking after our current customers, and then winning new business, and then also looking after our sales team.
0: (laughs) And I wanted to ask you a bit more about how the idea came about. But before that, it's probably helpful for context to ask you both what you were doing before you got to the idea. So maybe um, Lucy, start, start with you on that one.
1: Sure. So when I left university, I set up a food business called Cuckoo with no prior experience. I didn't even know what the word FMCG meant. Had an idea with an old school friend and launched a business that sold on the go, Bersham Muesli pot. So for anyone who's ever been skiing, they've probably tried that. We ran the company for four years. We had loads of highs, loads of lows. Won some amazing listings with the likes of Tesco, Waitrose, et cetera, and then went on to sell the business, which definitely sounds more glamorous than it actually was, but very proud of what we achieved and don't have any regrets. And then after that, I went on to set up a consulting business, just taking all of my experiences and knowledge in helping other food and drink SME businesses with their business plan, sales strategy, really everything and anything around running a startup. And that's where I met Jeremy during that consulting time.
2: Yeah and from from my side I my first job in the food and drink industry was with a uh, actually a really big um, importer of kind of continental food so olives uh, charcuterie and things like that and I joined that business um, what probably about eight years ago now built their export business for them they were traditionally an importer and it was a bit of a project to start with and then turned into something a bit more meaningful and then um, I was looking for, you know, that was a 200 million turnover business. It was a great place to learn, but I really wanted to kind of, I guess, get involved in um, in an earlier stage business. And the timing was perfect because then um, I was contacted by Propercorn in I think 2014 to go and uh, basically head up their uh, international business they'd never really sold uh any packs outside of the uk at that point um and i was there for three years and helped them build the business from whatever it was sort of a uh one or two million turnover to begin with up to you know 12 13 million and getting to um a, a big kind of fundraise that they did so that was awesome and then um similar to lucy actually when i left Propercorn, um i set up as a freelance consultant basically helping other small medium-sized businesses um work out what to do about you know uh, building their brands abroad um and as part of that i worked with some great businesses um you know some smaller ones at the time like Pippin nut and, and dawston's and things like that and then i actually spent a year um as part of my consultancy but sort of seconded basically to vitacoco where i ran their international business for europe middle east and africa for a year um Brilliant to work under Giles Brooke um, and Tim Reese, And yeah, and then it was whilst I was there that Lucy, that me and Lucy met up and we agreed that maybe career consultancy wasn't for us and that we, uh, you know, we felt like we'd be a good partnership to launch a business. Um, and yeah, the rest is history, really.
0: And we see a lot on social media now about the kind of overnight success story. We've seen it with um, some uh, young people, particularly starting businesses that have grown really, really quickly. You guys have got a tremendous amount of experience as individuals, but also together under your belt. How important has it been for you guys to, um, I guess, sort of like learn on other people's checkbooks and, and arrive with that experience? Do you, do you think it makes a big difference to the confidence you have with this brand? I know, Lucy, you mentioned when you started your first business, you had no experience. Has it been different now with Nice?
1: it's yeah it's been it's been hugely it's been hugely different coming into it with experience and with knowledge and also with contacts because contacts go a really long way but also i feel like we have entered i've entered an entire new industry because whilst i had a lot of fmcg experience alcohol is a whole new game so for example with the sales side of things i was very knowledgeable on you know where to get your peanut butter brand, brand distributed but i didn't know anything about the alcohol routes to markets. I didn't know how the on-trade worked. I didn't know how festivals worked. But what I did know from Cuckoo was that it's fine if you don't know a channel or if you don't know something. It's all about being super curious and asking loads of people. And so I really had those tools to just go out there and learn incredibly quickly.
2: Yeah. And I mean, from my side, definitely. I explained a minute ago that so joining Propercorn, I really saw that as like an apprenticeship in um, how, uh, you know, a startup and a high growth startup gets going. It's amazing to work directly with Cassandra and Ryan. Um, and I, I also, yeah, that that couple of years I spent consulting, similar to Lucy, really, was amazing to get an idea of how, you know, it was done elsewhere. So the likes of Pip and that was a great, uh, you know, kind of learning for me as well and um, seeing what it's like, the difference between um, having two co-founders and just a single founder and i kind of i think nice for me at least nice is a really um you know i i kind of take the best of what i saw in all those instances and have learned from the worst of them as well to try and kind of build a business that um has takes all that into account basically so i definitely see it as a great apprenticeship and I, i urge anyone who you know is thinking about doing it to as you said kind of not necessarily like Go and learn on someone else's check, but essentially go and like go and test test it before, see if it's something you think you've got the uh yeah the tenacity for
0: and you mentioned co-founders so you guys obviously co-founders um your roles from what I understand are separate, and I think you know you hear a lot of things for people particularly who are looking to start businesses you're told never work with your friends, and we're told that it's really important to have clear different roles and responsibilities so that you can A be accountable but B I presume kind of promote trust that you guys have got your areas. Can you tell me a bit more about um your working relationship and how you've ever overcome sort of tension or whether you've just been very clear and therefore sort of haven't haven't had to do that. I guess lots of people um start businesses together. So it's interesting to hear a bit more about um how that how that dynamic works with the two of you.
1: Yeah. So uh, probably you don't, not many people know this, but Jeremy and I actually decided to go into business together only on the third time of meeting. I I can't speak for him, but I just kind of instantly knew that he was a great guy that knew a lot of stuff. And I recognized quite early on that we had a similar work ethic. So for example, we arranged to meet really early in the morning, which I love because I'm a real morning person. And I was half an hour early to the meeting and he was like 25 minutes early to the meeting. So instantly I was like, Love this guy. So we did we did go into business not really knowing each other. Um, and I think that has a lot of positives because if they're not originally your friend, you know, you're not so worried about offending and things. But we have built a really strong relationship and there are a couple of rules that we we really live by. We we generally speaking haven't really had a major fallout. I think we're both people that we don't really fall out with our friends. We don't really argue with our friends. So that hasn't really happened. We have had times where we disagree on something, but we just sit down and we just hear each other's opinions. And all of the times we've just got to a point where we both then agree with the right thing for the business. But I think one of one of the great rules that we've introduced to our business, and I would really urge anyone in a business to introduce this, is something called direct feedback. And Emily, I know that you're a big fan of this from our previous conversations, but... I think sometimes it can be quite scary to give feedback. You know, you don't want to offend someone. You don't want to upset someone. But we've just introduced something called direct feedback in our business. And we're really trying to make direct in the moment feedback part of the everyday. So, If Jeremy or I have done something or someone in the team and we think that that can be improved on, we will just go and we'll start it by saying direct feedback. And at the beginning, it was a bit nervy to do, but now everyone's totally cool with it. And then you just deliver the words and you say how you think someone could have improved something. And it's never meant to offend. It's never meant to hurt. It's really meant for you know the greater good of that of that person and that business and there there are a few other rules and things that we've done but we've just set some you know some really good things from from the beginning and we have we have built a really strong co-founding partnership and i feel really really lucky every day for that hopefully jeremy agrees
2: (laughs) yeah completely i mean um Going back to your initial, you know, question around, or some of the things you talked about, you know, not going into business with friends and things like that. I do think, um, and also this difference between being a, you know, a partnership, co-founding team, and uh, and just a single founder. I, I think I would find it quite difficult to be, uh, you know, a lone founder. Um, certainly for the first time, it may be different in the future, but um, having someone to share the highs and the lows and to bounce things off, I think is really, really important for me, like from a, you know, just my personality. And I think it's the same for Lucy. And yeah, we, as Lucy mentioned, we just decided very early on to just like never let things, um, build up. So yeah, from like literally probably the second time it ever happened, if there was ever something that was like, I think this could have been improved on. I don't think you did this quite in the right way. We just deal with it. And so yeah, I think um, I think we're lucky in that respect. Um, you know, from a from a personality perspective, um, we we just also you know me, you know mesh quite well. I would say so. Yeah, overall, I I agree.
0: And so, so we talked a little bit about your experience before you guys started this business together. How did the idea for this company come about? Because Lucy, to your point earlier, you didn't necessarily have specific sector experience. Was it? Um identifying a gap? Was it sort of tripping over something and realizing how does this not exist? Or how did it how did it actually come about?
1: Yeah, so it was exactly that tripping over something and thinking, how does this not exist? So it was back in 2017, Jeremy and I met at a trade show, established, neither of us wanted to be career consultants, would love to set up a business. And all we knew was that we wanted it to be in food and drink, because obviously that was our passion and that was where all of our expertise lay. And we knew that we wanted it to be either creating an entire new category, as Vitacoco did, as Seedlip did, or really disrupting an already big, very established category. And we decided to maybe go to America and see what was happening. But we didn't even get that far because literally a week later, I was mindlessly scrolling through Instagram, as us millennials do, and I spotted a wine in a can And as soon as I saw it, I became really excited and I traced the account back to America. And then I really quickly saw that there are about 20, 30 American brands doing canned wine. And I delved into the data a little bit and saw how much the category was growing. And there were a few things I really loved about it. First of all, I could so imagine it was a product that I would drink and all of my friends would drink at a festival, you know, on the train, I think we've probably all been on a train and seen people with a bottle of wine, a corkscrew and a plastic cup. And it's unbelievable that we live, you know, in a world where you can order your groceries on your Alexa, but we're still doing that on a train. So I immediately could imagine so many occasions where it was being drunk, but also I loved the way it would really disrupt the wine industry, which is pretty stuffy, pretty old school. Probably everyone remembers when screw caps came in and, you know, the wine industry, the world was ending to them. So I could really imagine it disrupting um, the wine industry because all of the American brands were, you know, they were really young. They were really they looked so different from the wine that existed. So got very, very excited and then looked at, you know, the gin and a tin and the craft beer and really started to see actually how many alcoholic drinks were in cans. So then quite nervously pitched the idea to jeremy i remember pulling together like a bit of a deck on all of the brands because i really wanted him to get as excited as i did and i sent it over and i think jeremy you were in florida at the time and you replied pretty instantly saying this is really cool let's meet up as soon as i'm back and start talking about this
2: yeah i think from my side the thing that was really um intriguing to me about it was to see how um to look at the adjacent categories to wine and see that this kind of thing had already been happening with quite great success in the UK. So I think um, you know cr- the, what craft bit what craft beer did for the beer category, I think was amazing, led by some really disruptive um, you know founder-led, entrepreneur-led um, startups, and then you know you just had to look at that at that time you just had to look at the shelf to see how many um you know new ready to drink kind of can formats are coming out and then we just looked at the wine category and it just seemed like the the height of innovation in in wine packaging at that time was the little kind of plastic um glasses with tear off foil lids and although that kind of works functionally um it just is a bit of a tragic reality really that that's the height of innovation at that moment in wine and so yeah i got really interested in it Uh, we we had some like fairly top line data about what the category was doing in america um and and then really the thing that tipped it for me was we we decided to buy some data on the uk market for kind of miniatures wine formats and then also um the rtd sector to understand like what is the addressable market essentially and when we saw the size of that and the the year on year growth, that was the real kicker for me to be like, this is like this isn't just a, a you know a little category. Um this has the potential to be huge. And, and that's been proved right in America. I think, you know, when we were looking at back then the category had gone from like five million dollars to fourteen to forty. And at the mo- most recent read for the American market is almost two hundred million dollar category now. So it's like proper exponential growth. Um and yeah we 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 see the opportunity for the same here.
0: So I guess what you're saying is, you know, after identifying a category that you thought was interesting and you could potentially be ahead of the market, which you guys have very successfully done as as the most popular brand in the space in the UK, you then took very seriously the idea of actually testing the market, um, seeing what the growth opportunities were to sort of make sure that what you were seeing on social media was actually backed up by consumer behavior and predictions.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, um, that's exactly the point. It's like, it's really easy to get, I mean, Lucy mentioned it. It's really easy to get excited about something if it very specifically and directly speaks to you. So Lucy was looking at canned wine and saying like, this is something I would buy. So like, let's launch, you know, let's launch it, which is a great gut instinct test. But the real test is, as you say, kind of not only um, uh, stress testing the potential size of the category, the size of the market, but also Um, you know, every single decision that you have to make when it first comes to starting a business like this similarly has to be stress tested. Again, you can have gut instinct on on various things, but, you know, for us, when it came to the wine, for example, um, it was a combination of like, let's get in a room with 20, 30 people and try a whole load of different wines. Let's try them from cans, not from cans, sparkling, not sparkling. And let's also look at the data, like which are the grape varietals, for example, that are in the highest growth at the moment, which are the ones that are, you know, most well known as being wine. Uh, and we literally did, we, we tested the lot, like we did um questionnaires asking people to what extent do they know, you know, is a Cabernet Sauvignon red, white or rosé? Is a Shiraz red, red white or rosé? And all these things like had to be thought about. So um, I think one of the things, we, we both talked about the fact that we were freelancing at the time we had the idea. What was great about that is it gave us the time and sort of space really to, to go through this process and be quite iterative with it. What we didn't need to do is like jump straight in because the clock was already ticking and you know, we had to get some revenue in or we had to go and raise money really early. This was a case of like, OK, well, let's start it off with let's meet once a week. Let's set ourselves some homework. And then, you know, let's get to one hurdle. Once we get over that, let's do two days a week and then let's spend some of our own money on it. And then let's see if someone else will want to spend their money on it. And so, yeah, um, it's definitely an iterative process. But like really looking at data, gut instinct, um, it's been really important for us yeah
0: and I guess test your relationship too right like it's not suddenly so high pressure because you're both unemployed trying to make it work each other out you've got some kind of slowness there um I guess you started to talk about some of the practical steps that you guys took but I wonder um Jeremy if I can press you a bit harder Mm. on those in terms of I guess in a way the brand piece is the easiest bit in the sense that you're designing a product sort of for yourselves and to a market that you guys are really knowledgeable about. But things like EU packaging regulations and the percent of the product and all of that, like how did you practically actually, A, sort of make it a business? I mean, beyond Mm -hmm. things like registering on company's House and kind of setting up the company, but... Also, there must be. I mean, we the regulation space. I imagine is is uh, much more complex with particularly alcohol. And um, what what sort of practical steps did you take?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. So, um, there are there a few things we worked out really quickly. Quite that we were quite naive about. So, I don't mind sharing that. The first, um, you know, we, Lucy, we had the idea in kind of well, Lucy had the idea in sort of October, November. We spoke about it a little bit here and there. We said let's start to spend some actual time on it from January onwards. And literally, the first thing we did is we agreed that we would get together at Lucy's house um, in the middle of January. It was dry January. I think we were both doing it, uh, but we went and bought every single kind of uh, wine from the supermarkets that we thought would at least somewhat fit our profile. And, and we've like started contacting these vineyards and it was at that point that when we came up to a a lot of dead ends and. That we realized, actually, one of the areas that we needed uh, to seek out some expertise on was specifically wine and everything to do with it. So the sourcing, procurement, understanding the, you know, legislation requirements, getting introductions to the big co-packers who weren't probably likely to want to listen to like little old Jeremy and Lucy. Um, And so that was definitely a big early practical step that we took. We realized that we thought we had the, um, you know, we had the experience and knowledge on how to build a team, how to build a brand, uh, how to build distribution. But we acknowledged quite early on that we needed to have expertise in wine, and therefore we needed a partner for that. So um, we partnered with a UK wine agency, and they've been um, absolutely kind of um, integral to our success, really, because they have allowed us to sort of get to that top table of economies of scale and procurement and tap into 30 years of wine experience. Uh, you know when we were only one month into the project, and then um, you know I think some other you know when you talk about what what's the kind of stuff that practicality what you know what did we what did we do um, the, f- the first thing is I've mentioned it already but we did keep running our consulting businesses because um, practically had we had we both had no income at that point we would have had to go and probably try and raise some seed investment. Um, before we had any idea what this project was even going to look like and and that would have been a lot harder um and we would probably have to give away a large proportion of the company which at that time when you talk about it being a company it was literally just an idea on a few pages so what was great is we were able to kind of uh continue to fund our own you know lives essentially whilst we put a bit more meat on the bone of what that was going to look like so we did go and talked to you know one of the first customers we spoke to about the project was Sainsbury's we met an amazing buyer there who was um, interested in the category we showed up there with no name no wine no idea what the brand would look like but they agreed with us that the category was interesting and that they needed a kind of entrepreneur-led startup type um, business to lead it and so what was great about that is we realized we had to go and like make advances across all you know we had to go and find the right branding agency, get some customers warmed up, even start speaking to some investors about the extent to which they'd want to be involved and I think those are the practical things that need to happen as you said beyond just setting up the company um that can be done in in ten minutes on company's house like the real setting up of the company is getting all that infrastructure in place so that you are ready you know as you said what, what can sometimes feel like an overnight sort of arrival when we launched in March twenty nineteen like that was that was the outcome of almost 18 months worth of like pretty hard work. Um, And so, yeah, it doesn't, as you said, it doesn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah. And I guess with that said, I mean, it certainly for me, when I was growing up, I was, it was made abundantly clear to me that if you can find something that you love doing that also makes you money, that that's really like the sweet spot of kind of nailing your career. And certainly for our age demographic, there probably as we all left, um, that kind of university age there was a lot more acceptance of not going into a professional career per se the idea of being creative and being entrepreneurial has been something that's kind of um swelled as a as a category lucy i'm interested you've converted something that you love into a business do you still like it now as much as you did then or more i mean i'm interested in what that process has been like for you
1: yeah, so I definitely love it more. Um, actually, I just did a LinkedIn post this morning about the fact that this month in particular has been my favorite month ever in the history of NICE. We've got a kind of new team in place and we're all working really well together. We're all performing really well. We've also had our best month ever on the sales side of things. We've had some amazing PR. We've had a lot happen. And I feel so, I'm a big fan of, of practicing gratitude anyway, but every day, I wake up and it kind of sounds quite cheesy, but I literally just can't wait to get to my desk and get stuck in. And I think I love it more and more as, you know, things grow and as the brand grows and the team grows. And I feel so lucky for that because we're probably in so the minority that we love what we do. And and it's an absolutely amazing thing. And so in answer to your question, I love it more every day. Well,
0: I guess it's, you know, there's a There's a, it's a real like baptism of fire, starting a business, isn't it? And you've got to learn everything on the go. And it's a lot of late nights and a lot of stressful conversations. So it's, it is, you've got it. There is a robustness that's required, but if you're, if you love it, it's sort of much easier to show up. Um, Yeah go up to it
1: definitely and um just to add on to it as well i get so excited that we gen i genuinely think we are you know changing a wine in an industry the wine industry which is is great and i don't want to diss the wine industry it's amazing it's steeped in so much you know history but it is quite stuffy and it is quite old school and I really feel that it does need change and the fact that we are starting to do that and bring new consumers into the category and break down these barriers, that is also really exciting. So, I think that's what I also love so much.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting an interesting point about the way in which marketing has evolved for brands in quite dusty categories because, you know, I see your brand everywhere but particularly on social media and I've got you know a young team and they're constantly sharing pictures and it's obviously a very thoughtful conscious brand decision um, that's directed at at a very deliberate consumer I'm interested Jeremy and you know you guys launched in 2019 how difficult has it been trying to navigate how to prioritize social media channels because you've got Instagram, which is proven, but also complex and various algorithms and whatever else. You've got, you know, Snapchat, TikTok, then Clubhouse, and then obviously your LinkedIn, which might be useful for connecting to investors, presumably with a small team, like you've kind of got to pick your lane at the beginning. How difficult has that been in a space that is really noisy and a lot of brands are using social media really as their only marketing channel?
2: Yeah, to be honest with you, it's really difficult. And I, I would actually say um, like, I appreciate your sort of um, words around the fact that like we already feel like a brand that is nailing those areas. But I actually I, I think there's so much more to do in that area. And I think it's something that is really difficult to own at the moment because um as if you take Instagram, for example, which is definitely like our most, um, you know, we have the most followers there. It, it's where we make the most noise and it's where we have the most traction, I would say. But even that is a really difficult platform to to really succeed on at the moment. Um, I, I speak to a lot of brands who are facing similar challenges to us around like there is just ultimately uh, a disparity between kind of supply and demand of content. So, you know, we've got something like 14,000 followers now on Instagram. Um, and the proportion of those that actually get served our content is, is way lower than like you would have anticipated it being and certainly way lower than it was two, three, four years ago when Instagram was still a bit more of an up and coming platform. And I think that's, that is where you find these challenges around, you know, we, we are just starting to, Um, you know, move into the world of TikTok, which actually I find way more interesting and exciting because it's much less of a curated platform and it's a place where you can just chuck anything up. And I think that I think TikTok and the reason TikTok especially appeals to a younger kind of demographic, I think is because people are slightly starting to reject the over-perfection and curation of, of like the Instagram feed essentially. So, um, definitely really challenging to work out where to, where to spend all of our time because you're also kind of going down a rabbit hole to some extent of, and giving those platforms a little bit too much power almost. It's like, um, to be honest with you, when I think about us building our brand and building brand fame, um, I I want to take the blinkers off and and actually start to look away from social media to some extent. I think our distribution is is probably one of the biggest feathers in our cap for actually building like true brand awareness. Um, and I think uh, you know a a properly successful sort of um, comms strategy involves social media as one of uh, on one of many strands of kind of. Media proliferation, if that makes sense, I think that's been proved recently. We've had some really amazing uh, press, as Lucy alluded to recently, um, in kind of all the uh, main title newspapers and and um, and lots of interesting websites and magazines and things. And uh, you know, the more I think about it, the amount of engaged readers and eyes you've got on that kind of um, communications is is just as potentially important as social media. So. Yeah. Even the length of this answer probably demonstrates just the extent to which we find it difficult, like really to to kind of work out what is the definitive plan and what's the future of kind of building brands on social media.
0: And is there a little bit of a test and learn with that? Is it like you've kind of got to commit to something and then review and decide, you know, set proper sort of timeframes, but focus on things. And then as you say, okay, maybe we need to move away from that, or maybe press is doing something interesting, but in six months, you know, there might be something else. Do you think that there's, um, you'd almost advise to sort of take the heat out of it and the pressure out and just sort of test things and and really look at the impact?
2: Definitely. Um, We're doing it all the time. And even that is difficult. It's like finding the balance with which to say, okay, like for this, you know, for the next month or for the next two months or three months, we're specifically going to and um you know work in these three areas and therefore consciously not do seven other things um and then you know you'll just be scrolling instagram and you'll see you know another brand that you respect and think it's doing great doing one of the things that you've turned down and you're like oh god should we be doing that it's that's the thing it's really difficult to um to stay really focused and almost yeah kind of stay committed to those decisions yeah Mm -hmm. I, i find it tricky and um thankfully some extent it's not it's not really totally my responsibility
0: (laughs) you guys look at competitors and other businesses on social are you quite disciplined about saying that's actually not additive you know we need to sort of know what's going on for obvious Mm. reasons but this sort of constant comparison culture is actually quite reductive
1: yeah, we're definitely fans of the latter thing that you've said. And, you know, we we look at competitors, obviously. I mean, whoever says they don't is I don't believe them. But we do not obsess over them. We do not sit around for hours talking about them, because if we were to do that, it would distract us from our own journey. And we also just have a very firm rule in our business. No, you know, no trash talking anyone, even in our space. We only speak well and highly of Competition, the competition, and really, it's a good thing because we're all growing the category together. We wouldn't want it to just be us.
0: You guys talked a minute ago. Jeremy you talked about um, your uh, like retailing or distribution network being a bit of a feather in your cap. I'm of the opinion that anyone can sell a hundred products or a hundred books or a hundred tickets to something. That's not really the skill. The skill is taking a business that's not just present on social media, but is actually selling and delivering and desirable and in stores. And you guys have done that really, really successfully. Um, Lucy, do you take time to enjoy achievements in the, in the business or is it just a constant, relentless pursuit? I know you mentioned a minute ago that you practice gratitude and you're sort of acknowledging this month, but is that something that you've had to work hard to do? Or are you guys quite good at saying, you know, shout out, we've, we've done this and it's, it's a really big step?
1: Yeah so I think we we are we are alright at it. So we've just we've got a Slack channel which I'm sure most businesses do and actually one of our interns suggested we set up a channel called quick wins where you can just share like anything great that's happened that day. So yesterday, Jeremy shared an amazing graph of our Acado sales last year versus our Acado sales this year. But then also you can share um, stuff like your amazing delivery you've had for lunch. So I think we've introduced that. And that's really nice because with all of us from working from home, those quick wins like the Acado graph can just get lost and forgotten about. So we've got that. And then I also think as a business, we're quite good at in our daily meetings, calling people out that have done something great. So for example, our new sales hire last week, I gave her the challenge to win a wholesaler in the Isle of Wight. And within two months, she's done it. So we did a round of applause for her. Um, and then as a team, you know, we do celebrate. We had a quick clap to ourselves about having our best month ever. But then you are moving on to the next thing because this month's over now and it's now all about May and, and getting the good results in May. So you don't really have the time to sit around and, and celebrate it, it all.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really good, good point. I know that we. Um, the three of us chatted last year and particularly last summer. I mean, it's very difficult to talk about business at the moment without mentioning the dreaded C word. But COVID obviously um, you know, smashed through a lot of your plans last year because of the summer and festivals and all the other things. And your response to that was to really focus on online sales, to create merchandise, to talk more and nurture your relationships with retailers, etc., it seems that in your culture, there's an element of, you know, that was good or that was bad. But let's take stock and move on. It seems a very progressive um, mentality. Do you, are you, do you feel very culture first as a business in terms of how you're training up your team to um, overcome some of the challenges that you'll face?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, definitely, you're right. Last year was a big challenge. Um, What's quite encouraging is even, you know, even before the sort of reopening was announced and back end of last year, speaking to uh, existing investors of ours, speaking to like potential future investors and other people who, you know, are uh, whose opinions I value, all kind of um, extolling the virtues of, of businesses that are able to, continue to thrive under the circumstances we were in like those are the businesses that are going to really hit the ground running when things do get somewhat back to normal and so you're right like we we had no other option than to focus on uh spending our time elsewhere you know other than the um sports um sports events you know uh, music festivals music venues they all went away so we had no other option other than to focus on e-commerce we were lucky that um quite organically that started to pick up quite heavily especially on amazon and then it gave us the confidence that people were you know willing and prepared to sit there and sit at home order wine on their phones and laptops to be delivered to their house and so it was great for us i think um a a classic example of what you just described uh, this thing of sort of getting over the lows and uh, not dwelling too much on the on the highs is that last week on Monday last week I got a call from our e-commerce fulfillment warehouse um, who uh, had to give me the bad news that they'd been burgled over the weekend, and uh, of about the thirty brands they have at the e-commerce site, four had had stock stolen, and we were one of them. And we'd had, and so they said, "I'm going to send the numbers over later, but it's been a real—they've done us over proper job." Five thousand pounds worth of stock we had stolen last Monday. Um, at the same time, I went to the insurers and realised that. I'd forgotten to inform them that we had uh, a new e-commerce warehouse, so it wasn't named on the policy. And I'm still working out whether they're going to pay out or not. But that was a bit of a, you know, kicking the teeth. Um, but then that same week, we had our biggest ever week in sales, like by almost eighty percent. It was our biggest week ever. So, and then yesterday, we just had Richard Branson talk about us on Instagram, uh, on his LinkedIn, and and like we've just had all these really weird, like huge, quick wins since that happened. And so it's definitely something I've had to kind of teach myself um, or se- something I hold quite dearly or um, having started a business is that trying to remain calm, like when it's bad and also when it's good is, is is quite an important thing. Like, you know, we are ultimately just at the moment, a little canned wine company and the world's not going to fall over if, you know, we run out of stock or if, um, you know, these little things happen here and there. So, yeah, I think, trying to keep a level head with all this stuff is, is important. That's why I don't really tend to like dwell on the big stuff for too long. Um, mm. Yeah.
0: And I guess you'll always check your insurance policies now forever. Yeah. On this.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Do you know what's tragic about it? I used to work in the insurance industry before I got into the food and drink industry. So of all the people to let that go under, um, under the radar, it shouldn't have been me. So yeah. That I, one- I also think I can convince them to pay out. So we'll see. Perhaps they watch
0: this face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, is that one of the challenges that that you would say um for people who are starting businesses that there are just so many balls in the air that you know unfortunately things are going to drop and actually the pursuit of this perfectionism is probably really unrealistic and unhealthy the reality is is that you're gonna send stock to the wrong address you know the buyer is going to be sent something that might have exploded in the post or you're going to show up to the wrong address and forget to sign a document or whatever is that just sort of part and parcel of moving through the process of growing a business
1: yeah I think definitely and in our handbook when people join our business on day one we go through an entire handbook of how we work. And we've actually got an entire slide dedicated to making mistakes. And we state that no one in our company has ever been fired for making a mistake. Mistakes we see as quite a good thing because you learn from them. And as as long as you're not repeating the same mistake over and over again, then you're fine. So I had an example this morning, our new sales girl made a slight mistake by quoting the wrong pricing to the wrong wholesaler. And she rung me, you know, so apologetic and so upset that she'd made a mistake. And I was like, chill, it's fine. Don't even say sorry. Let's work through this. Let's learn from it. And my parting words to her were, you'll never do this again, because you've made this mistake. She's very new into the industry. She's doing an incredible job for us. So it's totally cool. So we do see mistakes as a, as a, as a good thing. And they are, you know, part for parcel, as you said, as long as you're learning from them, then that's totally fine.
0: Yeah, and I guess you're not hiring perfect people on day one, right? There's a an attitude you know I've met some of the people that work with you guys and there is an attitude from your team that there is a huge investment from you guys in the people that you're bringing on because you want them to be tagged into the journey and I guess you know startup culture is that people don't really question working late if they have to or standing on their feet at trade shows which is some of the most traumatic experience of my personal career (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah there's like an element of you know, you're not hiring people necessarily on six-figure salaries who are going to show up with 20 years experience. You're hiring young, scrappy, interested people who are sort of like wide-eyed and open to learning. But you do have to also kind of integrate them into your culture as you grow.
1: Yeah, totally. And and we are exactly doing that. So we're big fans of hiring, you know, really quite junior people. I think especially with this pandemic, it's really great to give... That generation who have really suffered, you don't miss their last years of uni and things, really give them a chance um, as we go through this situation. And we're really big fans of just hiring the right character and then bringing them into the business and just giving them all of the right training. And we really invest in training. We are so super passionate about it. And if you have the right character... Then they are generally really receptive to the training, so um we we're really pleased with our strategy in hiring and training, and it seems to be working really well for us
2: I just to add to that I think that that is definitely one of the things that um I've brought with me from my days at Propercorn, and also seen other great businesses like Vitacoco do so well is um like the guys the founders of Propercorn made no bones about it, like they wanted to hire entrepreneurs. And they wanted to hire people who um, and they wanted those people to either achieve their kind of entrepreneurial goals within the business or eventually outside of the business. And they really didn't mind either way. And I know Cassandra takes uh, great pride in the fact that I think I was the fifth departing Propercorn employee to start my own business. And I think it might be up to like seven or eight already. Um, which is kind of mad, really, because the business has only been going about eight years and pretty much no one left for the first five. So, yeah, it's something that I definitely uh, took with me. And I, I, think, um, I, I think it just breeds such a great culture in the business as well. It's like a complete meritocracy and a place where you can come and learn. So, yeah, for sure.
0: Jeremy, I want to ask you about money. Um, mm. So, I work with a lot of brands that raise money and it is always – incredibly stressful and people often make a lot of mistakes with the money that they take and there's a huge complexity to um, investment documents. You guys have a more unique approach to raising money and creating relationships with investors. Um, Can you tell me a bit more about how and when you decided you needed money and what the actual process was of of trying to get it?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent, I guess we were quite lucky that um, we like we knew that in order to produce one can, we had to produce hundred thousand cans. We were going to be launching with two products to start with, so um, we always knew we had to raise money before like pre revenue. Um, so that wasn't really something that like we could uh, pour over as a decision. Like we always knew that was going to be the case. Now we um, we did at one point. When it came to kind of doing the brand creation, um, we sort of initially thought we could do that on a bit of a shoestring budget and then realized actually just how important the brand strategy and development was going to be. And then we kind of completely U-turned and went to all the big branding agencies and felt that that kind of also wasn't the right fit for us. And we landed somewhere in the middle. Um, And um, Lucy and I had the decision basically whether we wanted to go and raise money at that point with really like very little traction, no brand to speak of obviously, uh, no customers, or whether we wanted to fund it ourselves to get to the point where we had like something you could hold in your hand, um, and go and sell some customers. So that's what we did. We, we spent pretty much, well, certainly speaking for myself, all the money I had, um, you know, getting the branding done, but we had such confidence that we were going to get the right outcome that that then informed the fact that we knew we had to raise money before launching. Um, and yeah, when you talk about the slightly, maybe different approach that we took to, to others, um, we were quite, you know, having spent time in the consulting world and worked for a lot of other, uh, you know, invest angel investor-led, entrepreneur-led businesses, um, we had a good network of people. I also had worked for some people who, you know, uh, were now starting to be angel investors. And so actually what, what I did is... Um, I went to speak to them sort of quite off the record i set up as many you know calls or or coffees as i could to have quite an off the record chat with people about like if we were to be raising what would it look like you know um uh, how do we actually raise the money who should we get it from one investor ten investors smart money only or friends and family as well and And um, yeah, what we landed on is that we felt like we had the right amount in mind to give us a pretty good runway to just get on with executing our plans for the first sort of year or two. Um, And that we had enough traction that we could command kind of a reasonable enough valuation that meant we could raise the amount of money we needed without having to give away so much of the business. That then, you know, it, it wasn't really in, as interesting enough still for the founders to kind of see it through. So, um, so yeah, that was great because what I essentially did is went to see lots of people I already knew and some people I'd been introduced to, and say we're thinking about raising some money. Like the deck might look a little bit like this. We're going to set a date of first of September to officially formally start the raise, um, and then we're planning to close it within two months, and we're going to do it on a kind of first past the post basis. Well, the beauty was of doing that is. Um, I'd already been speaking to people at back end of July and August. And so when that 1st of September came and we like sent the decks out, we went and I so, well, we actually, we tended to um, kind of pitch in person to anyone who wanted to meet us. Um, then like within a couple of weeks, we had half the money raised already because we sort of have it, had it earmarked already. So we created that scarcity immediately where I was unable to go out to some of the other investors who we'd already pitched to and say like, look we're almost halfway well we're over halfway done on this raise now we are going to cap it at the amount we're going to raise so we're not going to overfund um uh, you know I, i'm not trying to put you under any undue pressure i'm just trying to say that when i said we would be raising this over two months like we're already halfway done in two weeks so don't miss out and then um we very quickly did it after that so four weeks i think we closed the whole lot and then i had to go back to investors and say like i i did, i know i warned you but um we have now raised it, we've now closed the round closed around and a lot of people came back and said, Oh, I was literally just meaning to email you. Like, are you sure you wouldn't take any more? And it's that perfect, um, you know, kind of when you build scarcity like that, um, people want it even more. So what's nice is that means there's, you know, other investors waiting in the wings for next time we want to raise.
0: So that's been and you you guys have raised a couple of times and we'll kind of continue to raise as and when you need it, but do the best that you can to, to generate enough revenue to keep Mm. the business. running.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the best bit of advice, um, bits of advice I ever got given or so far got given was from, um, I mentioned the, the first company I ever worked for in the food and drink space. And the CEO of that company is a guy called Stephen Higginson. He's actually one of our investors as well. And he, um, he said like, if there's one thing you do when you're setting this business up, he was like, negotiate as hard as you can on payment terms, on absolutely everything. Even if it costs you money, even if, if it costs you a couple of percentage points on your margin, whatever it looks like, just beg, steal and borrow for payment terms at both ends of the spectrum. Um, and it's something that's really like stayed with me. And what, and, and what we've been able to do is actually build um, kind of a positive working capital model. So, you know, with our suppliers, we have pretty long payment terms. And with some of our customers, we are on really short payment terms, which actually means that um, what we don't constantly have this requirement for is like cash just to fund cash flow. If that makes sense. So, um, but to address your other question about uh, our raises so far, yeah, we raised uh, we raised money pre revenue. Um, at that point, as I mentioned, we were just planning to launch two products: uh, a, a, you know, one size of uh, pale rose and one of sauvignon blanc, and then we were thinking about launching malbec, kind of as and when consumer and customer demand um, sort of desired, really. And that happened sooner than we thought. And then also we launched with 250 milliliter cans. And then suddenly our can manufacturer explained that there was going to be this new smaller can format for wine, which had never existed before. And we acknowledged that that would be something that kind of could help us build a channel split between pack sizes. So we went from having a working capital requirement for essentially a minimum order quantity of 200,000 cans, all of a sudden we needed 600000 So yeah, we did go and raise a little bit more money as kind of almost like an extension to the first round after a year. Um, but we were able to, um, you know, increase the valuation by almost 60%. We brought in a couple of new angel investors. And so, yeah, it's kind of, it wasn't necessarily through uh, like design that we did it that way, but we just acknowledged that there was essentially like a shift in the business plan. We had a bigger working capital requirement and we didn't want to end up running the entire business only on payment terms because that could be a bit daunting, a bit scary. So yeah, um, and, and then we are we are planning to do uh, probably a, a bigger raise at some point later this year. Um, and you know I've kind of started my skullduggerous work already that I just mentioned. So I've spoken to a few investors here and there and kind of set a time frame for when that would happen. But, um, yeah, it's quite exciting. Lots of existing investors planning to follow on and a couple of other, um, you know, big name investors that uh, are really interested in our business. So, that's probably the thing that gives me the, the most encouragement is when we're getting kind of acknowledgement and interest from, from you know, great people in the industry.
0: Yeah, and I guess, you know, letting them see the growth and be engaged with the brand because the worst time to raise money is when you really need it, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Um Lucy, we talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, contacts that you've made in the industry and and Instagram and, um, and sort of learning on the job and going and asking the questions and figuring stuff out. How do you make sure that you keep learning as you go through the journey of running the business?
1: So I am a huge fan of meeting other brands. I'm a big fan of being super curious. So I do a couple of things. I do one thing that's quite embarrassing when I'm out with friends because I'm always trying to understand all of the routes to market in alcohol. So which wholesalers supply which sites whenever I'm anywhere, if I'm in a shop that I think nice would be good in, if I'm in a pub, I'll always go and speak to the manager and I'll ask what's your route to market? Who do you buy from? So I do that, which can sometimes be embarrassing for my friends when I'm out with them. And then the other thing I do is I probably have calls with five different brands. So my whole Friday is normally blocked out for calls with different brands. And some people might think that that's like a huge amount of my time taken up on calls with other brands. But I honestly find it, the most beneficial thing. So I have my monthly catch-ups with Dash Water and um, with Lucky Sane and with El Rayo Tequila. And then there are quite a few other businesses that I regularly catch up with. And it's especially important for me running the sales side of things to be communicating with brands that supply similar channels to us, us and asking them, where are you winning at the moment? Who are your new customers? You know, where are you losing at the moment? What are the new channels that you're opening up? And we basically, I mean, we have a little bit of small talk. We're like, hey, how are you doing? How's life? But then we just get stuck into it. And we take it in turns to basically go through all of our leads and just share knowledge on where we're winning and losing. And then we exchange the right information afterwards. And I find it the most helpful and beneficial thing. And it's really how I built all my knowledge in the alcohol routes to market. And then it's also useful. So for example, we're going through the B Corp process at the moment and Dash Water have been really helpful with, you know, explaining different types of policies and, you know, sharing knowledge with us. So building out this network of people, it is the strongest, it's one of the strongest things that are business have done because then when you need something you can literally get it instantly and then we're also very good at giving back to people because it it all goes around what goes around comes around right so you know I do the whole usual like podcasts and books but really the main thing I do is meet other brands and be super curious
0: yeah I mean it's good advice I think it's about kind of having a get up and go attitude isn't it to to being aware that there's a lot of information out there and, and your, your peers and contemporaries are, you know, a really good place to start. And it's a great attitude, I think as well to, to not see other people in in a kind of competitive sense, but, but having relationships with them is sort of additive for everyone. Um, you know, with that in mind, I think, you know, the podcast is called the busyness podcast. Everyone is increasingly busy. I've told three people today that I'm fucking busy. Um, it it seems now to be a standard that's akin to success. The busier you are, the sort of more successful you are, which, um, you know, seems sort of counterintuitive when you think about the the four-hour working week and other things. How important for you guys is a routine, um, daily or weekly, to ensure that you actually get through the mountain of, of stuff that you need to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good... It's, it's a tricky one for me. I think, like you said, it's really easy to to fall back on this idea of telling everyone that you're really busy. And actually, it's probably a bit of a business rule of ours that we we try and never do it, even when we are, because it, a it does it somewhat shines a light on like your inability to plan things or whatever. Which even if that is the case, it's something you don't really want to project out to the world. But then also, I think we we do have a really good balance of of basically trying not to get to that point where we're overworked. I've seen so many other, um, you know, friends who work in other industries or actually found other founders uh, in our space who are just completely overworked. And I think if you're not really able to like enjoy the journey, then that's the really dangerous bit. If you're only, if you're like ruining yourself with the end goal of this big kind of exit moment or whatever it might be because it may never come and i think you i personally think you've got to really enjoy the actual process so we're pretty good at not like working late hours and really not like actively working at the weekend don't get me wrong we always we both wake up in the middle of night and have midnight thoughts about the business Um, so that's the first thing to address i think is like trying to not sort of project uh, a sense of busyness to some extent but then um coming back to how to therefore manage and do my best not to be too busy it does definitely come down to um to kind of uh, scheduling and um you know basically planning your day and and the way we have a few things that we do kind of business wide i guess one is twice a week we have um like digi free time periods where i can't remember whether it's three hours or four hours either way it like feels like plenty long enough to just say like we. Don't, no one talks to each other on Slack or on WhatsApp. We Most people even turn their uh, Wi-Fi off. And it's a time to like really focus on big picture thinking. Um, that's really helpful because you know you've got these like moments that are a catch-all moment that you can, um, you can sit back and like nothing else is going to interrupt you. So I think that's good. And then for me especially, like the role I uh, play in the business is uh, where Lucy looks after sales and we have a brand manager who kind of, um, you know, looks after the brand and marketing side of the business, I basically run everything else, So everything from like production, um, operations, finance, investors, e-commerce, and all these things. So like I could sit there and just be reactive, um, to things that are coming in all day, every day. So what I I have to compartmentalize my week to do that. So no, if it's processing production orders, I just do that at a set time during the week. And that allows me to then let things build up and then not think about it otherwise. So yeah, I think that that's a big thing, you know, is like trying to plan your time best and not be reactive. I must say, I'm not I'm not amazing at it. Like if there are things coming in that I can see happening and I know they need to be dealt with right there and then, I find it hard not to get distracted. Um, I'm kind of one of those people that I can't have like the little red dot on my iPhone. Like, you know, I can't have an unread email or an unread message here and there, it's sort of a OCD type thing, I guess. So uh, it's something that I've had to like teach myself is to say like, I'm doing that then. And, you know, it can wait. Um, so, yeah. A bit of a long answer I guess maybe I should be more busy
0: no it's great it's really helpful here because you know some people use uh, you know a lot of tech and things like Todoist and which mm. I tried to, do and then I was just more stressed because I had another app telling me I hadn't done what I was supposed to be doing yeah. but you know for some people routine is um very regimented and and getting up at the same time every day and doing the same stuff and for other people it's like a lot of shit's happening on the fly, so you know you're just kind of getting through it and and trying to, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit more unstructured. So it's yeah. interesting to hear more about more about your process, um, Lucy. I'm interested if you could tell us what's next for the business. What can we expect to see for the rest of this year and beyond?
1: So it's quite hard to plan this year, as it's probably the case for lots of businesses, but main things for this year are we are aiming to become a b court business by christmas so as a team we're all working through that process at the moment and we've all got our particular areas of responsibility and then we're hoping and aiming and should be and already are growing our distribution so expect to see nice in a lot more places across the uk ranging from wimbledon tennis to lords cricket ground to Festivals to beach bars. And then we're bringing out new products in August, which are still within wine, but outside of cans. And then we've also got a big brand fame activation piece going live in the summer. So those are kind of, I mean, that list could go on forever, but those are just some of the main things that are next for NICE.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Guys, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to chat to me. I'm sure. Um, your story individually and also together as part of this business will be both inspiring and also practically super helpful for lots of people in the early stages of their business or or thinking about it. I'm sure the last year has been painful for you guys in terms of the restrictions, but i personally i'm sure you are too very much looking forward to seeing nice out and about much more i think every park and festival and event and train that uh, i go on, i expect to see it and i'm um, excited to watch you continue to dominate the category so thank you for sharing your story with me thank you for having us
1: thank you so much for having us we loved it